Hello and welcome to Have You Seen It? I'm Emily. And I'm Ned. And each week we'll take you on a three-part cinematic adventure. We will be reviewing something currently in cinemas. A past or present wildcard. And something hot on a streaming service. So let us be your cinematic spirit guides. So you can stop scrolling. And start watching. So Emily, what did you see in the cinema this week? I went to see After Sun by director Charlotte Wells. Another female director, another British film? It is another female director, it is another British film and it is another first feature, Ned. Ooh, and other than that kind of trifecta of, you know, feminist, nationalist, um, and kind of novelist, uh, novelistic, I don't know, that's not a word, reasons yeah. for seeing it. Why did you go and see After Sun? So the reason I went to see After Sun was because back in October, name drop, when I was at the BFI London Film Festival, um, this was the only film that I didn't get into the press screening of, despite arriving about half an hour early because it was so packed. Um, which kind of tells you everything you need to know. There was a lot of buzz around it. Everyone was very excited. So I thought, you know what, it's it's time. Now, I was jaded by not being able to go and see it, but I've finally seen it. What is it about? So After Sun is essentially a story about a young father and his 10, 11 year old daughter who go on holiday to a Turkish resort on the eve of his 31st birthday. Um, and it's this very kind of late 90s setting they're in Turkey. It's that kind of sun-drenched holiday uh, where the two are getting to spend some real quality time together. But it kind of quickly becomes apparent that although it just seems like a regular holiday, the father in particular is really struggling with some kind of internal demons. And that carries on throughout. So it's father-daughter relationship, but more through the daughter's eyes. Is it a horror? Is it a thriller? Is it a kind of psychological... Is it a dramatic film? Do, do things happen in it? Yes, it is relatively dramatic. In terms of genre, I don't really know what to say other than it's just, it's a drama. It's it's not particularly thrilling. It's not, you know, scary. It's not psychological. But there are small elements of the sort of psychological side of it. But yeah, it's really just very low-key kind of nostalgic drama. Okay, so it's set in the 90s, mm -hmm. which uh, I just uh, great. The 90s was so great. Uh, Britain was so great. Britpop, like whatever. <laughs> but set in the 90s, which I suppose is fine. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think as a 90s kid and also now being similar or the same age as the Paul Mezcal character, it really hit me kind of from both sides because you have the daughter who's turning, you know, she's turning 11. She's really excited about growing up. And um, this is quite a formative holiday for her. There's other kids around her who are like, you know, kissing and drinking. And so she's wanting to be this like grown up person while he is you know, 30, he's a father, he's kind of dealing with the fact that his life hasn't perhaps worked out the way he wanted to. So I felt very nostalgic for that time of, you know, growing up and having a first exciting holiday, but at the same time, really yeah. empathizing with the father and being like, shit, yeah, things really don't always pan out as you want them to. So I- Empathizing with the broken dreams and seeing the dreams kind of pre-breaking. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a bit of both. Like they both kind of want what they can't have, which is interesting. And because it is at, at its heart, it is, it's a film about, you know, depression and it's a film about grief because you also have these intersecting moments of, of Sophie when she's older and she's looking back at this relationship she had with her father. And it's telling you, she's obviously sad about the relationship looking back on it, but then it's also unreliability of memory. Things aren't always as we remember them, but there's a lot going on because she's filming a lot of the holiday on one of those sort of old fashioned camcorders. So there's so much to, to dig into there because you only film and record the best bits, but then at the same time, there's all these not so good bits going on under the surface. So yeah, it really, it, it, it's a lot. It really got me. <laughs> yeah, it sounds I, so deep. It really made me like sit back and think about <laughs> a lot of stuff and a lot of memories. Did you cry? I I don't cry a lot in films, but I was on the brink of tears. Would I have cried? Yes, I think you would have been like sobbing, <laughs> <laughs> like fully sobbing. But I, I think because it's so pertinent to like where we are. Yeah, as as really young, cool people <laughs> um, with loads of responsibilities yeah. uh, and a lot of demons. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds pretty overwhelming. Yeah. You're selling it quite well as something I probably want to go and yeah. see. But I also am like, if it's two hours of two characters, of any other characters? There, there, there are a few. So you have like the older version of, of Sophie, the protagonist. The younger version is played by the incredible Frankie Corio. But you, you have like the older version of her and you have other people in the resort. But it's really, it's the relationship between the two of them. So, so when you when you're saying there's another character which is one of the characters when they're older, yeah. it really it's, it's really a t it's a two parter. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah, yeah. It's a two hander. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds deep. It sounds pretty intense. Yeah. But I have slowly, week by week, been talking about British film, the state that it's in, and how maybe it got too twee and not in a great way. And I've kind of realised that actually I think we're maybe in a British film renaissance, especially as this film has got a lot of Oscar buzz. And it is exactly, not the opposite kind of film that I'd expect to have opposite, but it doesn't sound like a blockbuster. It sounds like a film which is very British. Why do you think it's got so much Oscar buzz? It's Mezcal's performance is like the main reason for it. And I think it's because... Not to take away from what Charlotte Wells has done here, she's she's created this incredibly personal, beautifully articulated film. But his performance as this young troubled father is really incredible and so underplayed, but also conveying so much of the grief and the depression that his character is dealing with. And also because, you know, he's Paul Mezcal. He's he's hot right now. Yeah. But he's really shown his chops, like from something slightly more mainstream like normal people to this more indie film and it's just been a really great platform for him and and the team behind it so he's good he's worth the buzz in this yeah i, I went in like pretty i was like it can't be he can't be that good and yeah he, he he is i love him for some reason i think i loved as one of a few people who loved the book of normal people mm. and i started watching the series and i was like this is literally just the book they've cast it perfectly and they, they're telling the story as well as they can on TV. But as a result, I'm like, I've, I've read the book, so I don't really need to watch the series. They're not really doing anything new with yeah. it. 
But I think as a result of that almost exact reflection of the book, his performance might have been slightly lost because all I thought was, this is exactly how I imagined that character. Mm. And I didn't think, wow, it's really, really hard to recreate a character this well as an actor. You know, I was thinking of directing and the writing and stuff like that rather than him as an actor. I I don't want to slag off. Paul Mascar seems like a great guy and... I think he is a rarity in the fact that he seems to be getting his success not purely based on his looks. I don't think he's like conventionally like Hollywood man, leading man, good looking. Mm. He's good looking because of his charisma and his charm and all of that sort of thing. So he is getting his roles and his success based on his ability, which a lot of other people have like you know, those kind of classic good looks to carry them through. So he's, I mean, he's, you know, he's got an Oscar nomination for this and he's he's absolutely one to watch. And he's being choiceful about his career by taking things yeah. like this. So yeah, big, big things coming for, for Mr. Mezcal. I mean, it's quite rare that you actually see, he, he must be a, he's a superstar, isn't he? On, on the way, Huge. like we're seeing someone, yeah. we're seeing someone who's proving themselves in the right way he's got and like i'm not discounting the the off-screen drama to that yeah (laughs) i'm trying to think of the last like celebrity actor who had this off-screen yeah hiddleston gave it a try and it kind of backfired hugely backfired on him i think you could say that um mr chalamet is an example of someone who is similar in to what paul mezcal's done here is with Call Me By Your Name it was a more kind of arty low-key film than taking like a superhero film or something whilst you know dating Lily Rose Depp or whatever Um, (laughs) so I think it's it's a new kind of career path for these leading men in Hollywood the direction beautiful yeah absolutely acting 10 out of 10 and yeah like I said Frankie Corio she is so young. How old is she? I think she's 10 or 11, so she is really on the brink of something massive. Is it better or worse than Blue Jean? Different. Um, What's more depressing? Uh, ooh, <laughs> probably this. But, the, but, but, ooh. but this is also, up. it's kind of like Blue Jean, it, it's depressing, but it's uplifting in that the, the lasting message is that like, you will always have your memories, like, well, unless you don't but that that that's something that you can really <laughs> that's not the message is unless you don't the message is you always have your memory <laughs> exactly and that's something you can carry with you and mm. even though you know that this film is called after sun but it is it is full of shadows ned oh brilliant stuff but at the end of the day it's telling you that you know we, we have these memories and you will always carry them with you kind of regardless of what happens so yeah it's a funny one because I, I, I mean yeah I because I've been to one reunion this week, which you were also at, and one funeral of a teacher this week, and I'm not going to lie, it's been a pretty emotionally yeah. nostalgic and heavy week for me. So I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking that maybe I'll lean into it and get myself a little bit of after sun. How much is a ticket worth? So worth its weight in tears. I would again, like I, really? I'm always, I'm always up for supporting like new talent and genuinely good films. So yeah, I would pay whatever the cinema wanted. No higher praise than that. Absolutely throwing <laughs> it around. <laughs> this week, Ned's pretentious pick 
otherwise known as the wild card. What have you brought to the table, Mr. Cedric? So I have gone for a film called Cairo Station. Now, I know what you're wondering. Cairo Station sounds like it's subtitled. It absolutely is. And it is also black and white, and it was made in 1957, so it's over 50 years. But I've done you a favour after the last kind of 50-year-old black and white socio-realist subtitled film. I've gone down from a two-hour epic into a mere... 73 hours 73 hours <laughs> imagine <laughs> we're building up to it i'm sure there's some kind of soviet film uh, like the workers of a world unite can't, can't um, wait. 72 minutes yeah. and i appreciate that ned i appreciated that i did um will you lay out for us what what's it about so this one has a little bit more of a plot and i say a little bit more of a plot because written down it sounds like it's got a lot of plot but watching it on screen it doesn't really go like that Essentially what it's about is it's about a crippled newsstand seller in the main station in Cairo and his descent into violence. But it plays out across this community that live in Cairo station. Um, So there are the other news sellers, there are the railway workers, there are the women that sell coca-colas and maybe do a bit of pickpocketing on the side and they build this entire community so it's as much about them as it is about this single man's descent into violence Mm -hmm. and why did you pick it so i am learning arabic at the moment very slowly and very badly and i looked up a list of the greatest arabic films made and this one came up again and again and again it was also made in egypt in 1957 And the 50s in Egypt were a fascinating time because Nasser was in kind of full control, the great pan-Arabic leader. Um, It was a year after Suez Crisis and it was at a time when Egypt was under all these competing forces of of post-imperialism, of nationalism, of modernity, which in a country like that at that time was a huge driving force, religious conservatism, And I wanted to see how a film made in that time would reflect that. And I think it did reflect it in a very, very interesting way. Mm -hmm. But, Emily, all of this pretentiousness is for nothing if you didn't enjoy it. Did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. It was very compelling, exciting. There was a lot going on. It had sort of Hitchcock vibes to it. It was a bit of a thriller. Also some interesting discourse around attitudes towards women and conversations around that. It kind of felt a bit ahead of its time in a way. Toxic masculinity, definitely addressed in some form. So I, I, I loved it. And I loved that it was short and sharp and really brought to life Egypt at that time, but also Egypt going forward as well. Yeah, it being set in a railway station was a really interesting device because it's a country that would have had railways from fairly early on. But it's still a symbol of modernity in its way and a symbol of kind of westernness. Mm-hmm. And there's a recurring motif of dancing and Coca-Colas and how people are dressed are really interesting because yeah. you get people in full niqabs and you get people in very dapper Western suits and women dressed. Very Western. Quite pr- provocatively, yeah. I say, in a kind of heavy inverted comment. 
I'm really, I'm really glad you enjoyed it because I did get a message from you yesterday when you were watching it saying this Egyptian pervert film is interesting <laughs> and I didn't know which way you were going to go on it with that. I think that sums it up quite nicely to be fair. Um, what, what also surprised me doing a bit of research into it was that the, <laughs> the Egyptian pervert to which I was referring, the, the character of Kanawi, he's, he's the director. So... Is he? Christ. Yeah. And apparently the reason he took the role was because no one else would wanted to play it because they were afraid of the backlash or the way that they might be viewed for playing this character. Oh, really interesting. So yeah, Kanawi, this main character, I kind of mentioned in the intro, but he he's an outcast of society and he's taken in by this newsstand seller and he becomes sexually obsessed with women that he sees in uh, magazines. Mm. And then he applies that obsession to the woman he actually knows, in particular this a woman called Hanufa, mm -hmm. who I think the implication is that she is a woman of loose morals for the time. Yeah. Um, but she is displayed incredibly sympathetically. She is not um, some kind of downtrodden woman who needs a man to save her. Yeah, she's she's very, like, independent and playing her own game, which I really liked about her. She's also very sexy. She is. Also, I wasn't expecting it because having, like, been to Egypt and, you know, seen the attitudes towards women and there's a lot of that, the women being sexy and those more liberal views. Obviously, there is the whole conversation that they have around the women get this unwanted attention and it's their fault because they bring it on themselves and it's yeah that's pretty pretty grim to see uh, but then I guess that's also part of the point that the film is trying to make that it's you know the, the toxic masculinity in this sort of culture just it felt ahead of its time in what it was saying and how it was saying it. As it was shot you kind of it does linger on women the camera does linger on women and then the the theory is that it gets more and more intense the way it lingers and it lingers on uh, Kanawi's staring at women and it's kind of mirroring what the viewer does and then you do begin to feel uncomfortable as the film goes on yeah. at, at the way women are being portrayed. It's a really interesting country because it, it well it's a fascinating country for a million reasons it's got all of this history but you're right in the potentially a conservative masculinity has remained there but at the time of this film being made, I don't think they were clear. I don't think there was a sense that they knew which way it would go because feminism mm -hmm. was so new in a country. And there's a scene where a women's rights organisation are addressing the press and one of them's in a suit and it's women against marriage whilst these um, other women are trying to run away from the police. And I wondered, now this is me going to make a kind of real reading too much into its subtext point, but I was wondering whether the whole film was a bit of a, an attempt to re reflect Egyptian society at the time. Mm -hmm. So you've got women trying their best, trying to make a living in this new world, um, despite the authorities repeatedly trying to out to get them, despite modern men in inverted commas beating them, and, and despite the kind of lecherous attempts of these creeps. I think Kanawi kind of represents the traditional left-behind element of Egyptian society, and how incompatible that it is with modern women and modernity generally. And, um, and then I think you have this NASA-esque figure who's in charge of all the economics of the station, mm. 
and there's a union being attempted to be formed against him involving one of the lead characters who himself treats women very badly. So it's just got so much going yeah. on in 73 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree with, with how you've outlined it. I think it's, it's, it's an interesting portrait of Egyptian society that they're painting, but it feels like all the, the components are there. And there is something, like you say, about the, the transience of like a train station and the different characters that are coming through. But also from a cinematic perspective, it, it's a huge scale production. It's a massive feature film, mm. but it's set in one location. So it's really showing that you don't need these big productions to be able to tell a story in such depth and with so much action and excitement, um, which I found very interesting. The other thing that just reminded me was when you were talking about the lingering gaze of Kenry, which I think is so true. I really noticed feet. <laughs> as a theme yeah. and like women's shoes. I was like, there's definitely like a foot fetish going on here because he's always looking at people's shoes and like high heels. And I guess maybe that's a Western thing about the fetishization of the sort of heeled shoes and things like that. I don't know. I was, I was just very struck by that, which maybe says more about me. No, I think you're completely right actually, because I remember actually, as well as the women's shoes coming up again and again, his shoes, are so decrepit and ripped right. and he's, he's got a slight limp and there's something to do with feet yeah. and him as well, reflected in the, in the film. Yeah. It's actually a film I could, I could easily watch again and I think get more out Absolutely. of. Absolutely, and I will say it is very watchable and I think that's the like Hitchcock element there. It's this kind of, it's almost a bit, especially towards the end, it gets a bit sort of like a slasher film. There's definitely like references mm. to Psycho with the knife and you know, there's train carriages and it all definitely, there's a lot of like shadow play with the, the lighting. And it, I definitely felt like it was, yeah, really, really watchable. Apparently the shadows get more intense as the film goes mm. on. Apparently he shot it in a way where the shadows get more intense. So then my question Ed, is where do you think someone should watch this on their film education journey? I think you should watch this after you've watched a Hitchcock film, maybe not even an educational facility, Maybe nothing like that. Nice. You just go, I like Hitchcock. I'm fine with black and white. So I'm going to try something similar, something interesting and something of cultural relevance. I think also if you're studying um, the Middle East in the mid 20th century, mm -hmm. it's kind of invaluable. I would totally agree. I think the seeing a Hitchcock first would make you also feel quite clever watching it because you'd be like, oh, yeah, seen that before. Um, so, yeah, couldn't agree more. And finally, Emily, we have got The Book of Dave. Bank of Dave. The Bank of Dave. <laughs> An unforgettable film, I think, I think you'll agree. Yes. Second British film in this episode. I'm going to put it out there, maybe slightly different to After Sun, but what is it about? So The Bank of Dave, which is currently on Netflix, uh, is a film by Chris Foggan based on the true story of a guy called Dave Fishwick who is played by Rory Kinnear, who's a kind of salt of the earth, self-made millionaire from Burnley, who wants to set up his own bank to support the local community. But unfortunately, the wanker bankers down in London haven't allowed a new bank for over 150 years. So Dave recruits lawyer Hugh, played by Jill Fry, 
to fight the good fight and set up a bank that can actually do some good for once. Now, why did you pick this film? I picked this film because someone had told me that they were banging on about it on The Rest is Politics and that it was a good film. It's got quite big New Labour vibes to it, I would say. Um, It is not a socialist film. It's like... The answer is with the bankers, but not the ones in London. Right. Your friends with the bankers. It's like, shouldn't, shouldn't the answer be the entire system is kind of rotten from top to bottom? No, the system requires minor alterations <laughs> and then we can do it. Right. Did you enjoy it? Uh, not really, Ned, no. Despite, you know, it's got that sort of David versus Goliath narrative it's got a pretty strong cast and it's got a lot of the british charm that we've come to know and love but it just really it didn't do it for me and there are a number of reasons so i personally love a based on a true story situation and i was like yeah this dave guy seems like a great chap but the only comedy really seems to come from this jarring north south divide which is funny for a bit like when Joel's character Hugh goes up to Burnley, he's like, oh, where's Burnley? And he can't understand any of the locals. That wears thin pretty quickly. Likewise, mm. all of the kind of Etonian bankers being dickheads. Even Hugh Bonneville, like that trope, again, wears thin pretty quickly. And it just felt really, really one dimensional to me and kind of got quite boring. I felt like it's been done as a book and a documentary. And I was like, it didn't need a feature film. Mm. What did you think? So, as you know, I am Lancastrian through my mother and I love Lancashire. It's not a county which I think gets a lot of airtime, especially since Manchester was cut off from the rest of Lancashire by the boundary changes in 1974. (laughs) Um, It's not necessary somewhere where you get a lot of films or TV set in it. You get the bay, which is about Morecambe and Compared to Yorkshire, though, especially. Mm-hmm. And actually, the trip, the first series of a trip is mainly set around Lancashire. Right. And it's somewhere I'm very proud of having family and having links to. I think it's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Do you work for the Lancashire Tourist Board? Yeah. <laughs> Visit Lancashire. <laughs> and so I was just about drawn in enough by the fact they were just showing Lancashire in a good way. Genuinely, I was like, look, they've got nice clips of the trains going through beautiful countryside. Everyone's more friendly in the north, even though this is one dimensional cliche Mm. about of what northerners are like, salt of the earth. And then I remembered Phoenix Nights. Did you ever watch Phoenix Nights when it was on? No. Phoenix Nights was Peter Kay's big sitcom breakthrough, a slightly naff club in uh, the outskirts of Bolton. Kind of like a a working men's club, and it had um, local Elvis lookalikes, and it had Lancashire versus Yorkshire nights, and it is so funny. But it's nearly impossible to find on streaming, because apparently a lot of the music they used, they find it quite hard to get the rights on. And I was just thinking, there was a period in the late noughties where northern comedians, northern film and northern culture was quite a big thing it, across to Yorkshire you had you know Arctic Monkeys coming through up to the northeast you had Maximo Park you, you, you had this kind of uh, mainstream British culture centred around the north yeah. and I was just like this isn't it <laughs> this isn't it this is not this film where a guy 
where just this London guy goes up to Burnley and he's just fucking rude to everyone. <laughs> like, he's just like, uh, no, I don't need your help. I'm like, who would be like that? Just someone's like, oh, do you need a hand, mate? He's like, uh, no. It's so true. I will say, so the director, Chris Foggan, is himself from Sunderland and other pieces of his work include Fisherman's Friends, which is obviously about Cornwall. So I wonder if he has just like a bit of a thing about different bits of the UK and their like stereotypes. But it feels to me, this film feels like it was made by a quote unquote Southerner, but the fact that he is himself from the North, it just mm. felt very uh, and just a bit lazy. And I just, yeah, it wasn't my thing. I'm not, I'm not sure if I was from Burnley, I would actually mind about it because it is playing to the gallery a bit. And it's like, it's, that's fine. But the other thing, <laughs> I was thinking about it. Can you think of many other films as directly about the financial crash as this one? No, I, I don't think I can. I mean, I think, you know, when you think of financial films, you think of The Wolf of Wall Street or The Big Short, but n not insofar as like UK focused. Yeah, and it was such a traumatic and important moment in our lives. Part of me as well was just like, you know what? I'm happy somebody's making a story about this because it is, it is an underserved part of our modern history. Yeah. Talking about it and addressing it. But I, I think there's room for improvement. Agree. Is it bingeable? Once you start, can you stop? So I watched it and I had to stop halfway through because I got bored and had to pick it up the next day. But the people I was watching it with were quite invested in it and watched the whole thing. So take from that what you will. What would you say? Did you binge it or did you struggle? It's so, it's such easy, fluffy watching. I'd actually recommend it to a lot of people um, to watch with their parents. I think it's a great Christmas or Easter film when you don't want anything with sex or drama That's in. That's true. Um, depending on how uh, committed to the South your parents are. Um, <laughs> But I, I've got to say it wasn't, it wasn't something which I felt, I was playing backgammon on my phone a bit as I was watching it. It, yeah. it wasn't something I felt completely kind of drawn in and had to watch every second, yeah. every second of it. It was, it was fine background viewing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's got good, good performances, British actors. We've got um, Phoebe Dinover from Bridgerton and... I didn't love Rory Kinnear's accent. I'm not sure how bad, I think he was... I think he was probably doing a very good impression of the guy, but yeah. it could have been a bit broader. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm a filthy southerner who has not a very good ear for northern accents, but I did think that Roy Kinnear's performance was great as this self-made man who'd kind of kept in touch with his roots. I thought that that was nicely done. Mm, I, yeah, I wasn't. It was a bit too eop for me uh the lawyer he was fine it was fine it was fine yeah, exactly. if you want to find if you want to put something on that's fine this is a film for you but if you want to put something on which is great about Lancashire Brassic uh the Bay or um or Phoenix Nights if you can find it lots of great Lancastrian uh, uh, uh media out Noted. there visit Lancashire <laughs> at visit Lancashire um all right bye, bye. <laughs> That is everything for today. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to give us a like, follow and subscribe and follow us on Instagram at haveyou.seenit.